G'day, g'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I want to let you know that some of you may be aware that over the past eight years, I have built a substantial multifamily real estate portfolio here in the US worth over half a billion dollars. And in that time, my passive investors have received fantastic double digit returns. And now you too can invest directly into my deals for as little as $50,000. So if you're an interested investor, head over to reedgoosens.com to find out more. That's reedgoosens.com. Now back into the show. Self storage uh, has there's 53,000 or so facilities in the US. That's about the same as all the McDonald's, Subways, and Starbucks combined. Wow. Fortunately for people in our space, about 75%, about three out of every four are operated by independent operators. And about two out of three of those independents only have one facility. We call those mom and pop operators. Mom and pops typically don't have the desire or the knowledge or the resources to make changes to increase income and to maximize value for the investors. So my favorite thing about self-storage frankly, is that the fact that there are all these mom and pop operators who leave all this intrinsic value for somebody else to pick up for their investors. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, Reid Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today, 
Today in the show, I have the pleasure of welcoming back a good friend of mine and a good friend of the podcast, Mr. Paul Moore. Now, over the years of this podcast, Paul has actually been on the show twice before, way back in the early days in episode 78. And that's why, like, I can't even remember how far back that was. And more recently, he was on episode 164, about two and a half years ago. And I highly recommend for all of you to go back and listen to those episodes to get a bit more of a feel of who Paul is. But for those of you who don't know who he is, is, and I'm going to give you a little bit of an elevator pitch. Now, Paul is a longtime real estate investor. He's a thought leader. He's a podcast host. He's an author. And to top it all off, he's really a down-to-earth, all-round good bloke. I've known Paul personally for many, many years, and he's just an incredible guy. He's also a regular contributor to the Bigger Pockets uh, Forum, which I'm sure all of you know about, you know, producing blogs and live video content. And he's also the, po- the host of of the podcast called How to Lose Your Money. And to top it all off, he's a three-time best-selling author with his recent book, which we're going to talk about, Storing Up Profits, has recently been published by the Bigger Pockets platform. We're going to talk about that on today's show. But I'm really pumped and excited to have him back on the show with us to share his incredible knowledge and his insight. But enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Paul. Welcome back to the show, mate. How are you doing? Hey, good day, mate. It's great to see you again. (laughs) It's great to see you too, my friend. And and I truly do mean it when uh, I, I was just thinking as I was writing that intro, how many years we've been friends together. We're obviously in a mastermind together. It's been going for yeah. a very, very long period of time. I think the last time we met up was a couple of years back when you were here, here in Los Angeles on a bit of a mission-based journey uh, in yeah. and around people trafficking. We'll talk a little bit about that in, in the future. But Tell us what you've been up to, mate, since you've been on the podcast last. I know, I know, I know what you've been up to because I talk to you every month, but what about for the, for the listeners? Give, uh, fill us in. Yeah. So, you know, we did not, our company, Wellings Capital, does not have, did not have a great acquisition team. I'm just going to be really honest. And so it fit well with our podcast, How to Lose Money. Thanks for being on that years ago. And uh, we, uh, you know, our acquisitions team uh, did not have, a great inroad on getting great deals in the apartment sector. So I wrote this book, which we talked about on the first show, The Perfect Investment, which is about apartment investing. And I got to tell you, Reed, if I was going to pick one asset I had to hold for 100 years, like Warren Buffett thinks about, I would pick apartments. I mean, if I was going to do commercial real estate, I think people are going to be living in the apartments they're building around Austin 100 years from now. Self-storage mobile home parks. I don't know. You know, I don't know how things might change and those assets might be different. But at any rate, during those five years or so, I was beating my head up against the wall trying to find apartment deals that made sense. We weren't getting those inroads. And so I started looking outside of multifamily and I discovered that there are a lot of untapped intrinsic value in certain asset classes or certain asset types that just have attracted mom and pop operators over the last, say, 30 to 50 years. And a lot of those operators are older and they have a lot of untapped potential. They've gotten tremendous uh, benefit from cap rate compression. They're, you know, often mediocre assets are, you know, valued at about double what they were just from the cap rate compression over the last, you know, 10 years and throw in a little inflation on top of that even more. And so we discovered that in self-storage and mobile home parks, but we had a problem. Not only did we not have a great acquisition team, uh, we did not have uh, history 
in self-storage and mobile home parks like I had in multifamily and hotels before. So we decided to begin investing in other people's deals. In fact, we became a due diligence partner for our uh, investors. And we went out and we said, look, we're going to find the very, very best operators in self-storage and mobile home parks. We're going to cut through a lot of the clutter. We're going to do a lot of due diligence. And we're going to find the very best best investor investment opportunities we can. We eventually put those together in a fund. And now we've rolled out five funds to allow people to invest um, in these asset types. Our goal is to give people diversification over, you know, these asset types and geographies and operators and strategies. And so that's what we've been doing for the last three or four years. That's awesome. And then it's good that you had the self-awareness to know that where you're weak at, right? Like, and you could go and plug that and say, look, I may not be, have the best acquisitions team, but I know the value of providing to my investors good quality investments, right? So you went out and found good operators. And I think that's a very good self-awareness that a lot of operators or a lot of people who aspire to be in this space, they think they can do it all. They think they can operate. They think they can find the deals. They think they can raise all the money. And knowing in this in this game, in this sport, that it is a bit of a team sport. You need different players at the, at the table. So five funds, how much money have you raised in the last couple of years through your funds right now? I think we're at about 74 million last wow. I checked last wow. month. That's incredible. That's incredible. And what's what's the future hold for for the funds? Keep keep rolling it over as 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 opportunities come come around. Yeah, we are doing that. We've got these five funds going, but we hit a little bit of a wall here. We always try to stay in compliance with the SEC, as you do, and um, we came to the conclusion that our best level of compliance, as we want to grow much more than we have would be for us to become a registered investment advisor and launch a public fund. So we are in the process of doing that right now. We expect by April, 2022, to have a public fund that won't be publicly traded, but it'll be publicly registered. And that means it will be managed by us as a registered investment advisor. Our goal is to raise about, you know, quarter billion dollars over the next three to five years to invest in, you know, a diversified, portfolio of these different asset types. That's incredible. And, and, and I, I'm just more interested in that. Why does the registered investment fund, how does that change in terms of what you're doing now and what doors does it open for you to, to go from 74 million up to 250 million? Like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know that it'll open that many doors. I guess it could, but um the first goal was to be in the highest level of compliance and, you know, make sure that, you know, the SEC was happy with the way we were doing it. And for those of you who might be wondering, wait, is my syndicator in the best level of compliance? I'll assure you that the issue here, um, like our friend Hunter Thompson has brought out, is that we're a third party to the deals. You're not. Other operators, other syndicators your listeners have invested with are probably not. So, they don't have to worry about this. But as a third party to the deal, we're coming under the, not the 1933 SEC Act, as most of us are, we're under that, but we're also under the 1940 Security Advisors Act, which means that we're, you know, we're more or less uh, an investment advisor in a sense. And so that's why we did it. 
I think it will, you know, we've been told it will open us up to opportunities, you know, to go out through the broker dealer channels and get additional investors, more family offices, more people who want more scrutiny, more eyeballs on it. We'll have a very intense S, you know, audit audits every quarter. Uh, I mean, just, you know, all, all this, most of the stuff a public company would have to be subjected to will be subjected to. Awesome. Well, look, I wish you all the best on that. And uh, I'm sure we'll get you back on the show in a couple of years time to see how it's all going and see your, your progress to the, to the quarter billion dollars. And I, I have no doubt in my mind that you'll get there, but, but let's turn to the, to the, to the latest book, which um, we're talking about now, storing up profits. And for those people who are watching on YouTube, you can see a copy of the book. I actually just purchased one the other day. It's a red book capitalizing on America's obsession with stuff by investing in self-storage by, by Paul Moore, founder and CEO of Wellings Capital. If you haven't got your hands on a copy of that, please, Head up, just Google storing up profits and you'll find it. Paul Moore. Also, check on the uh, the Bigger Pockets publishing website, they'll have it all there. But, but Paul, let's get into what why self storage. You know, you, you mentioned earlier that you were in multifamily and you, you, you struggled to find deals in terms of acquisitions, but why did you pivot then to self storage? Yeah, you know, self-storage is a larger industry than many people would think. The problem for most international folks is they don't realize, they don't see a lot of self-storage in Australia or Europe or, you know, other places. But 95 to 99%, I've heard, of self-storage is in the U.S. and Canada. Self-storage has, there's 53,000 or so facilities in the U.S. That's about the same as all the McDonald's. Subways and Starbucks combined. Wow. Fortunately for people in our space, about 75%, about three out of every four are operated by independent operators. And about two out of three of those independents only have one facility. We call those mom and pop operators. Mom and pops typically don't have the desire or the knowledge or the resources to make changes to increase income and to maximize value for the investors. They don't need to, they've already had this cap rate compression, which I mentioned. And so they can continue to be mediocre and continue to have a fabulous, uh, you know, income stream and profit potential when they sell. So there's that, my favorite thing about self-storage, frankly, is that the fact that there are all these mom and pop operators who leave all this intrinsic value for somebody else to pick up for their investors. Um, This industry is largely recession resistant. When um, things are good, people are putting stuff in their Walmart or Amazon carts, and they need a place to store some of their stuff. When things are bad and people are experiencing, you know, downsizing, dislocation, death, divorce, the four Ds, they're often needing a place to store their stuff. Nobody guessed COVID would happen, but two years ago when we were just learning about it, uh, people wondered if the world would end, if they would die, if, you know, whatever. And people were wondering how all of our assets would perform, of course. Nobody guessed that self-storage would perform, would just roar out of COVID as what Wall Street Journal and New York Times call the top producing commercial asset class since COVID. A couple of the reasons Number one, there's no eviction moratorium in storage. We're only storing stuff, not people. Uh, second, uh, the um, student housing, uh, students in colleges, right when COVID hit, 
there was a ton of uncertainty and doubt with, with the two weeks to flatten the curve really happen. Should I put my stuff in storage? Should I pick it up this summer? And will I be back in the fall? So a lot of people put their stuff in storage, which gave a little bump. But over time, those other, you know, those four D's, death, downsizing, dislocation, divorce, all four of those have kicked in at a higher level, sadly, for America. But it also means that a lot of people, for example, have been leaving places like Chicago, New York, other places to move to Utah and Texas and Arizona and Charlotte and Florida. And so when they do that, they need a place to store their stuff a lot of times. Uh, a lot of offices have downsized. I have a friend who manages enormous amount of office space around DC. He said a lot of people are breaking their leases and they put their stuff in storage. Restaurants and bars and other organizations that have closed down, at least temporarily, if not permanently, they put their stuff in storage. So self-storage has done really well during the pandemic. Another thing about it is the tenants are really sticky. I mean, these tenants are on a month to month lease. And if I'm renting an apartment, for $1,000 a month and you, my landlord, raise it 6%, eh, I might not want to pay 6% more. I might move rather than pay $60 a month or $720 a year on this one-year contract. But self-storage, it's a month-to-month -month lease. And if I'm paying $100 and you raise my rent 6%, I might say, eh, it's only six bucks. I'm not going to spend a weekend, get my friends together, get a U-Haul to move my stuff down the street just to save six bucks a month. Besides, I'll be leaving soon anyway. Well, often that doesn't happen. And so these are some of the reasons self-storage has done so well. Let's talk about it from a macro point of view, because you know, a lot of the listeners on this show are actually Americans. I will say, just given where we are, we're recording early January. I've just got back from uh, three weeks of vacation in Australia. I've actually noticed more self-storage in Australia recently. Mm -hmm. With, with people consuming more stuff. Now, I won't get into the philosophical stuff of, of materialistic BS and, you know, we, we, we got this, uh, you know, innate, as humans, innate, you know, urge to spend money and buy crap we don't need. But in general, let's take a sort of a, a macro look at, at, the, at the market here in the United States. What type of markets are you investing in? You know, we, we, I talk a lot about multifamily on this show, we talk a lot about where people are moving to primary markets, secondary markets, tertiary markets. What are you, where are you investing right now and why? Yeah, so the biggest downside and risk in self-storage is building a new facility or leasing up a, a, you know, an unstabilized facility and then having a national competitor pop up down the road. So our most nail-biting experience in this realm was investing in Florida right in the middle of one of America's top two fastest growing master plan communities. Well, it was a great place to be. There were houses and apartments and condos and townhomes popping up everywhere. But this self-storage facility is a large facility with over a thousand units in it, was unstabilized because it was newer. We invested and right away, two things happened. First of all, a lot of the units suddenly became vacant and nobody came to pick up the stuff. Huh, I wonder what happened. Well, it appears, though I can't prove it, that the previous owner padded the numbers with lots of fake tenants to pad their, uh, you know, their income and make it look better than it was. So that was a, a blow. But the bigger blow came when we found out that two national competitors were quickly building facilities right down the street. When those came in, 
I can tell you they have better marketing than a typical regional operator. They have better property management. They can afford to take losses for longer. Uh, It's very hard to compete with them. And even if you can compete on an equal playing field, and we're just talking about triple the capacity for the same amount of users. And so it made it very hard. And so for the first three and a half years of that investment, we were supposed to get, eh, let's say five or 6% a year after year two, we got a total of 1.8% in cash flow over that three and a half years. Fortunately, they did get it righted. It was stabilized and the uh, property sold for an 80% profit net to investors. So we got our principal and 80% back in three and a half years. So it turned out to be fine well over 20% a year in the end. But that points to the big issue here. And the question is, do I really wanna be in one of these national locations where you're gonna get a national competitor, especially when there's development going on all around? No, maybe not. Uh, Two of our most difficult investments have been in locations like that. But what about Ishpeming, Michigan? It's in the UP, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. It's a town of about 3,000, and there's lots and lots of people around that area, but there's hardly any storage. We invested there in a very large facility, and it's full, and uh, it's working out great. Or Beeville, Texas. You know, you're involved in Texas, but I bet you haven't been to Beeville. There's 12,000 people there. Uh, We invested in a 607-unit asset there. It was mom and pop, had five feuding kids, no marketing, no website, uh, 80% uh, occupied, which isn't horrible, but not great. Rates were way under market and the kids were feuding and wanted to sell. Well, they didn't get the 5 million they wanted, but our uh, operating partner paid 2.4 million cash and closed quickly. He did everything right over the next six months and got an appraisal of, remember he paid 2.4 cash he got an appraisal of 4.6 million and he financed it at that level, taking almost all the equity off the table. And he sold it for that same amount about a year later and paid us investors very, very well. So there's a good argument to be made for going to a small to mid-sized town. The metrics are still the same. And if you want, we can get into the Let's metrics for what makes a great location. Well, you just mentioned that you know, 3,000 people with 600 units. So what are you looking for? What are you looking for when you're looking at a, a, at a facility in terms of sort of your one to five mile radius in terms of population? Yeah. And maybe in terms of, I don't know, is it, do, you, do you look at drive-by any sort of metrics yeah. on, on how many people are driving past the facility so they can see it? Yeah. In the book, I talk about four major metrics for self-storage location. So one would be the uh, population in a certain radius. If you're in a downtown location, you know, if you're in LA and, you know, there's a public storage on lots of different corners there. Um, If you're in a downtown location, you might want to look at a one mile radius. If you're in a very rural location, you might want to be in a, you know, 10 mile radius, but I would, let's just take a three mile radius, a typical suburban location. We want to see seven or eight uh, square feet of self storage per person for every man, woman, and child in that radius or less because seven or eight is the typical average. So in locations like Florida and Texas, California, where they don't have basements very often and they, you know, they don't use their attic because it's hot in some of those locations. 
the storage ratio might be more. In places like the Midwest, like Ohio, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, they typically use their basements, so the ratio might be less. But if you can find a location uh, to invest in, like we did, that had about two square feet of storage for every person in that three-mile radius, you might have a good location. A second factor would be the traffic. You want to get vehicles per day. You want to get a high count. So if that's in a major metro area, that high count might look like 50,000 cars going by a day. In a rural area or a smaller town, it might be 10,000 cars a day. Uh, we like to see a high vehicle count. The third factor is the um, visibility. There is a self-storage facility near me on a main road that I've driven by for six years. I don't think I ever noticed. Though It's a large facility, but it's kind of hidden by, behind some offices down a hill. And I just didn't notice it. So you want good signage, good visibility on your uh, you know, your location. The fourth Perfect. issue would be income. You want to get an area that has medium to high income. You definitely don't want to slum, even if you're one or two blocks into a bad crime area, people are not going to want to drive there. They'd rather go two miles the other way to find a place to store their stuff. So take a look at the the crime and all that, but, you know, just look at the income in that immediate area. It's a very you know, micro market view. I can take you around Nashville, Reed, uh, and show you how overbuilt that city is for self-storage. But I can take you, you know, 10 miles south of Nashville to one of their suburbs, two of the suburbs, Bellevue, Belmont, and they have virtually no self-storage and a great demand for it. So it's very, very micro. For those of you who are interested in staying up to date with all the latest happenings in my business, or to learn more about passively investing directly into my multifamily value-add deals, then head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter. By signing up, you will automatically be notified about my new up-and-coming investment opportunities. You'll be able to stay up to date with all the latest real estate news here in the United States and much, much more. So head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up today. Now, back into the show. Going back to that, those, those metrics you just mentioned, because I just want to repeat them for, for people listening. You said seven to eight uh, square feet per person in a, in a three-mile radius. Is that correct? It, yeah, and you would have thought it was a certain radius, but it's any radius. So one okay. mile, three mile, whatever, whatever radius is most relevant to your property. And when you say per person, so if you have, say, let's just do easy math, 10,000 people in a one mile radius, and that's probably, you probably a very yeah. built up area, but let's just, just awesome. use that for, so you're looking at a 70,000 square feet of storage you need in that one mile radius. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And that would be a one, you know, medium to large facility. And then, so then you would then look at, well, who's the other facilities in the area, right? And you have to, you know, uh, you know what's coming online, who's existing. Yeah. And, and that's where you're saying, because you might not be buying a 70,000 square foot property or whatever it is. You might only be buying a smaller property or whatever. So looking at that demand, and I guess that's where you come into your, 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 your second thing is around demand and looking at, okay, if there's 10,000 people in this one mile radius, but there's, and if that means there needs to be 70,000 square feet of storage, um, then but we've only got, you know, you only identify one facility at 10,000 square feet. Well, then, you know, there's a delta there, right? And that's where you say, hey, 
this is going to be good for me because there's just not enough in order to facilitate everyone's need in the self-storage space. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. And there's more to it than that. You want to look at other radiuses while you're doing sure. that, but that's technically correct. And there's a wonderful tool called Radius Plus that has all that mapped out for you. Radius Plus. Okay. Listeners will definitely have to go on uh, on, the, on the website and get it. So, then you talk about vehicles per day and visibility. So you want to be on major thoroughfares, right? That you don't want to be that 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 facility tucked behind the office space. Or if you are, you want to have a good signage. So mm-hmm. do you look at, at places, again, going back to your smaller secondary and tertiary markets, I would assume that those facilities are right on major thoroughfares to have that, um, you know, the decent eyeballs on it per mm-hmm. day, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yep. And then the final thing, medium to high income. So what you're probably looking at, 50 to 80 or 90,000 dollars in terms of median income in an area or higher. Yeah, I mean whatever the median income is more or less and higher there's no real top end. Got it. For where you want to be. That's right. That's good. Okay, this is this is great uh great metrics for everyone listening out there so go out and find as many self storage deals as you can. Um but let's talk now about the operational side because a lot of people want to come in and add value. So let's talk about you figured out okay there's a need in this certain submarket. How do you know, you know, like with, with rentals, it's very easy to go and find data for what's a one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom. But how do you know what's, if a facility is undervaluing their, their space? Meaning, you know, I've got a hundred square foot, you know, pod, it's renting at a hundred bucks a month. How do you know what metric data do you look at to know if the rent is under or below, sorry, above or under market rate for that area? Yeah, that's a little bit more subjective. It's somewhat similar to the way, you know, apartments are done, but maybe not quite as many tools as apartments would have. Uh, You're basically looking, you know, you're looking at your rates. You're trying to figure out how long since your rates changed, how much marketing they're doing, what their occupancy is, and then you think through all that. Then you go out and look at the competitors and try to think through something kind of similar for them. If all the competitors are the same price, as you and they're full and there are mom and pops who aren't doing any marketing, huh? That's a good sign. But uh, you know, if they're all struggling to get uh, you know, tenants and they're doing a lot of marketing, well, that's, you know, again, subjectively speaking, at least that might be a sign of trouble in your location. Got it. And what, what ranges are you seeing on a price per square foot or a price per pod or space uh, per month. What, yeah. what, 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 are you, what are you buying in that? And what do you want to like try and push it to over a period of three or five years? Yeah, we, you know, for my sake, I don't look at it as much that way. I just wrote a, an article on bigger pockets that sort of addresses that. And it says it's called uh, why cap rates don't matter as much as I thought at least. <laughs> and it's talking about if you can find value add deals, like the one I mentioned in Beeville, Texas, that's just, terribly mismanaged from a, you know, mom and pop operator, even if you get a, I mean, I hate to say this, it sounds heretical, but even if I got a 0% cap rate, if the thing was so badly run, like the one in Colorado that uh, that we invested in that had 80% delinquency, can you imagine that read 80% delinquency? 
You don't make, you don't pay any debts. <laughs> yeah, right. So um, it doesn't really matter because in self-storage in one month, a good operator for sure within three months can turn around delinquency. I mean, you just basically start you know, giving people notice the day you take over, you can't do this anymore. There's a new sheriff in town. And so, um, yeah, we would look more at the cap rates for a stabilized asset. You know, we expect to sell a really beautiful franchised, you know, franchise model, stabilized asset at, you know, a four and a half percent cap rate, which is kind of similar to apartments. Uh, we would expect to buy, you know, if it was stabilized, we probably wouldn't want to invest in it. But if it was somewhat stabilized, we'd hope to get it in the 6% range, but have it operating pretty quickly at what would look like uh, eight or 9% cap rate, you know, by increasing income. That's incredible. So that, that's so you're looking at buying in place uh, around the four caps, four and a half caps for market rent, but you're looking to push those stabilized rents once you do your value add in the order to six to eight percent cap rates. Is that right? Yeah, and we've seen much much higher than that, especially with these mom and pops that are poorly run. And and we've got. I mean, I laughed, Reed, when someone told me value add self storage. I'm like, wait, where are the where are the lighting and cabinets and countertops and uh, appliances and fake wood floor and all that? There's, you know, we, we don't, I mean, we're talking about four pieces of sheet metal, a floor, a rivet and door, right? But I was shocked at all the value add opportunities in self-storage and it was just, it, it was surprising. So now let's, let's pivot into the management side of it because I think that's a really important aspect of any you know, in, when you're investing as a passive investor into someone else's deal, do most of your operators self-manage or do they hire a third party to come in and, and take over like you do uh, with multi? It's very similar to multifamily. A lot of operators start out trying themselves, you know, and then they go to an outsourced property management company. And then years later, they say, no, 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 we're pulling it back in house. Now we're big enough and we're knowledgeable enough to do it ourselves. So that's kind of the pattern we see, just like a lot of people see in the multifamily world. Got it. And in terms of turning around delinquencies and the management of that, I assume because it sounds like you're invested across many different MSAs across the country. Uh, are, are property management re regional or is it more, more you could have a, um, a property management company that covers a multiple states? Because I would also assume that in, and I just know a little bit about self-storage, you're trying to get to a contactless type of solution where people can just rent online, they have a code, they come in, they, they, they get access to their unit, and there's really no, no interaction with any warm body, unlike multifamily, where you need a leasing center, you need a maintenance team, you need a community manager, you need someone to, to show and tour um, the property, uh, and that just takes warm bodies and that takes more, you know, more of a local touch. So how are you seeing with these third-party property managers, are they more regional or are they more, um, you know, covering multiple states? Yeah, there's regional and then there's some national. I mean, you know, the, there, there's some REITs that do third-party management and then they own their own. And there are some real risks with that, by the way. But um, at any rate, it could work. Uh, there's some regionals and then there's some, there, there's lesser, you know, known local property managers, you know, that would only do, uh, let's say a few small towns or whatever. Those are typically apartment managers who just do self-storage on the side though. Mm. Um, 
As far as contactless, I think that's one of the uh, things about my book that I don't like. And that is I didn't cover much about contactless in there. It was written uh, before COVID really slammed us. And so um, COVID, has, it, there's a really interesting discussion about how it's affected self-storage. But I can tell you that um, the I, I mentioned in there that contactless is it, it's, it's the best time in history ever, I'm telling you, Reed, to do contactless because not only do we have the COVID experience, but we also have the technology. Just a few years ago, people were paying 30 to 35,000 for a kiosk at the you know front of the facility to allow people to have a gate code and to allow them to rent and put their credit card in and sometimes even get other stuff like a lock right out of the uh, kiosk. Now, I mean, just a few years later, you know, we've got iPhone technology and Android technology that'll allow them to do that right on their phone, except for the lock, of course. And um, the uh, technology is there to do contactless better than ever. And the desire for folks in the millennial category uh, to actually, you know, go ahead and rent online, even if they could walk in, is stronger than we had seen in the past. Now, I will say there are some downsides. One example, I mentioned a lot of value add opportunities in self-storage. One obvious one is renting U-Haul or rental trucks out of the front. I mean, let's just do the math on this. You know, we all know that residential real estate's based on comps, commercial real estate's based on math. And that formula is this, the value equals the net operating income divided by the cap rate, just like it does in multifamily. So if you can drive up the NOI uh, with the same cap rate, you can significantly increase income and even more when you add some leverage into the mix. Well, if you add U-Haul, you can add say one to $5,000 a month in commission. So you have U-Haul contracting with you. You've already got an employee there and I'm talking about a fully manned facility now. Now you can rent U-Hauls. They fill out the contract. When it comes back, they sweep it out and they set it back in front of the store. Well, that can add $3,000 a month. Let's do the math on that. $3,000 a month equals $36,000 a year. $36,000 a year added to the bottom line uh, with no significant outlay of any capital or any additional labor. Divide that by, let's just conservatively say a 6% cap rate, 36,000 divided by 0 0.06 is 600,000 added to the value of the facility. Read, if you buy a $2 million facility, and if you leverage it at, let's just say 75%, that's about you know half a million out of pocket to get in there and a million and a half in debt. The banker doesn't share in that 600,000 increased value, the investors do. You basically just doubled the value of the equity by signing a contract with U-Haul and setting up U-Hauls in front of your shop. I mean, it's pretty powerful. And there's lots of other value adds like that, like selling locks, boxes, tape, scissors, upselling, all kinds of things that can only be done with a live person. That's, a, that's incredible. And there's so many nuances to all of it in your new book of storing up profits, which is now available on the Bigger Pockets publishing website. Again, all for those people looking at us on YouTube, you can check it out. It's a lovely red book with a big box on the front cover. But Paul, um, just a little bit of a segue before we get into the final lightning round um, and wrapping up the show here. 
What do you got uh, in store for, for 2022 and beyond both personally and professionally? Yeah. Um, well, we are, uh, like I said, we're going to be launching this uh, publicly registered fund. Uh, and I am uh, excited about that. I plan to continue to do more blogging, uh, probably get more into uh, the speaking realm in the uh, more on the um, uh, medical side, really tapping into more dentists and medical professionals who really need better investments. Uh, that's one thing for me personally uh, and the company. Um, as far as uh, personally, I'm actually in the process of hiring an executive assistant right now. And I'm really excited about that. And I'm, you know, kind of trying my wife and a couple people close to me are saying now, I mean, if you gain an extra 20 hours a week from having this high powered assistant, are you going to add 20 hours of doing more? Or are you going to slow down a little? And I'm a high energy entrepreneur, <laughs> even at my age. And uh, I, I just don't love the idea of slowing down, but I am going to try to slow down and spend a little more time with family and friends in the coming year. That's awesome. That's awesome, my friend. Well, look, at the end of every show, we like to jump into the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Yes, let's do it. Mate, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Yeah, one thing I do is just quiet, solitude time in the morning. I like to have a journal out. I like to have a little, at least this time of year, have a heater blowing on me and uh, a little light. And I like to journal and think and pray and meditate and, and just really just try to slow down because I know once I open my laptop, it's going to be a hard run until at least dinner time. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And having those moments in the morning of reflection and quiet time helps set the mind up. And I'm, I'm sure you're the same as me. When If I, if I skip a day and I don't do it, uh, my whole day is ruined because, as you said, you can get the emails, uh, someone yeah. else's problem trying to get you involved in it, and it's you got to avoid it as much as possible. Question number two is, who's been the most influential person in your career to date? Yeah, you know, it was actually somebody who was not an entrepreneur. He never thought about owning his own business. Uh, he was a W-2 employee all his life, but it was my father because he taught me the value of keeping your word. He taught me the value of commitment to your family. My wife and I haven't always had an easy marriage, as I mentioned before, but he taught me that to stay committed and to hang in there and to love your wife and your kids and, and really just stay in there and put, you know, family before work and really invest in them. So I just owe him an eternal debt of gratitude. That's awesome. You having your, yeah, growing up with with good with parents who bestow upon their children wise wisdom, words of wisdom, wise ethics, and all that sort of stuff helps produce men and women and, and, and adults that we all aspire to be. So, um, so thanks, Dad. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he's uh, he's gone to a better place. But yeah. so question number three is: What's the most influential tool in your business? Now, when I say tool, it could be a physical tool like a journal or your book or a phone, or it could be a, a piece of software that you can't run your business without. What, what is that most influential tool? Well, our business has lots of software that we really love. Um, but one that, you know, I mean, lots of us know about CRMs like HubSpot and things like that. And I love that. But one new one that we've been using for about six months is called Asana, A-S-A-N-A. -A -A, and it's a scheduling 
not really a scheduling, but it's a project management tool that's easy enough for someone like me to be involved in, but workable enough that, you know, the extreme project management types can still get a lot of benefit. And we've been using that in conjunction with being part of an EOS type of uh, consulting in the last five months. And it's just been revolutionary for us. That's incredible. I'm also reading the book Traction at the moment and uh, getting a lot of uh, of good tips out of it and definitely something I'm headed into here in 2022 as well. But yes, I agree. Asana is an incredible tool for those people who don't use it. Definitely check it out for for project management stuff and also for scheduling. So awesome stuff. Uh, Paul, in one sentence, question number four, in one sentence, what has been the biggest mistake you've made in your career and what did you learn from that? I think it was failing to differentiate between investing and speculating. You know, investing is when your principal is totally safe or mostly safe and you've got a chance to make a return. Speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And uh, I did not differentiate those uh, very well early in my career. Yeah, that's a good good piece of advice there for those people who are getting this started in the investing world, understanding the difference between investing and speculating. And I'm sure we could have a whole podcast on just that topic right there. But Paul, my last question is, where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. Where do they go? Yeah, um, you know, I spent years in residential and tried to figure out how to get into commercial. And so uh, I know a lot of people felt that way. So I created a tool uh, they can use. It's an e-course, it's an audio course, and it's a special report. It's all the same material, though. Uh, it's at wellingscapital.com slash resources. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S capital.com slash resources. And all that's free for anybody who wants to uh, take a look. We also have a special report on self-storage there wellingscapital.com. Awesome stuff, mate. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for coming back on the show today. I just want to reflect some of the cool things that I took away from today's show. I think it was, I'm a real numbers guy. Being a former structural engineer, I love getting into the numbers. So understanding that seven to eight um, square feet per uh, household or per person person. in a a radius. And, And just to clarify on that, in a more dense market, that that ratio comes down to two or three. Um, no, actually, no. it should be seven or eight per any radius, because even as you change the radius size, you change both metrics, you know, both right. of the numerator and the denominator equally. So I was just saying that um, in a uh, underserved market, underserved you might market. find two to three square feet, for example. Of existing product, that's what. Yes, that's but, right. But but your benchmark, you want to be around the seven to eight, is sort of the national average to yeah. service a uh, community or, or, or an MSA. Like, uh, thank you for clarifying that. I uh, also loved you know talking about the vehicles per day being on a on a good thoroughfare, and then all in and around about. Uh, property management and understanding all the different ways you can manage an asset, which is very similar to multifamily, but under you know having making sure that that person or that team member, if you are looking to invest in self storage, making sure that um, the operator has that solved because a lot of people get into self storage not really understanding that the value add is there, but you need the people to execute on that that strategy. And if you don't have the right people on the team, then you're not going to be able to make any money. So people can learn all about that in your book called Storing Up Profits, Capitalizing on America's Obsession with Stuff by Investing in Self-Storage. Check it out today. Paul, I want to thank you so much again for taking some time out of your day to jump on the show. Uh, enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up on our monthly mastermind here in a couple of weeks time. 
Thanks so much, Reed. I really appreciate it. I'm really honored to be here again. Awesome stuff. Well, there you have it. And cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Paul. Remember, head over to wellingscapital.com to check out all the things that Paul's going on. Also, just Google Paul Moore, P-A-U-L-M-O-O-R-E. He is, you know, he's across the internet, across bigger pockets. He's got some incredible content out there. Check it out. I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about on this show. And we're going to do it all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Hold up. 